0: Uh, before I get into my sermon, um, one thing I wanted to make point of was thanking the elders uh, for giving us this opportunity. I preached one time in a class at MCC, uh, where I obviously go to college, but when I just heard of this opportunity and the fact that they were going to let us preach, I was really honored that um, that a church did something like that you don 't see that a lot in a lot of churches giving young guys opportunities to preach and um, you know working through the trials of them learning so I just want to say thank you to the elders um, for that. Um, let's, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I want to acknowledge you in this time of preaching your word. Even though we're doing this for practice, you are still working currently to show us your truths through your word. I pray that in my preaching, you would be glorified and we would worship you more deeply because of your word today. Let me be a vessel for your glory and let the people listening be edified today. Amen. The passage I'm going to be preaching out of is the rich ruler. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke eighteen, eighteen through 30. I'm going to be reading it for you. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, I've kept all these for my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life. So this is a dialogue. We're entering in the Gospel of Luke. What has just happened is Jesus has been healing infants. A crowd is gathered. And Jesus has been speaking of the kingdom and the things of God in eternity. And then throughout, in seeing this, a ruler approaches him and asks the question in verse um, 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when seeing this question, First off, what I want to know is that he respects Jesus. He says, good teacher. When you approached um, a rabbi or anyone like this, this was a sign of respect. He acknowledges that he has authority and that he has the ability to teach. But I think his question is off, and that's what we're going to analyze today. Um, He's he's seen Jesus healing. He's, He's seen him talk about eternity, and so he approaches him. But what I want to focus on is in his question, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He, he's posing the question as if he has the agency to do this. He assumes he has the capacity to. And we all do this. When I, when I think about eternal life, and when you think about your story of how you've came to God, this is one of our first questions. We all know eternal life is real. We all know of that truth that's in us from the day we were born. What must I do? To inherit eternal life. It's a question worth asking. We need to ask it so we may receive the gospel. But how we ask it and who we're asking it to matters as well. He's asking it to the source, Jesus. There's no one better he could have asked this question to. But when he asked the question, the response he gets from Jesus is interesting. Jesus said to him in verse 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What Jesus is saying here is he he responds to the man called Good Teacher by hitting at what he believes goodness is. The man has just asked a question about eternal life, and Jesus pushes back on him, saying, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone." It seems as if Jesus is one saying he's not good, and saying he's not of God, and saying he's not God. This is confusing. But through study and, and through my reading what, what I've gathered is what Jesus is doing here is he's not denying his deity or his goodness. He's called himself good already. In John ten eleven he says that I he says I am the good shepherd. And so what we have to understand when he is responding to this man is he's not saying, you know, again that he's not good or that he's not God, but he's responding to the man's question. All throughout this dialogue, Jesus is pushing against this man's assumptions of eternal life um, and goodness and how he thinks he can receive eternal life. And so Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And then in verse 20, continuing the dialogue, following his statement, he says, he goes to the commandments. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. It's interesting um, that he says this because he doesn't use all the commandments. He only uses five. And so the question becomes, why does Jesus use these commandments? These are in particular. This kind of seems off base to what the man's question is about eternal life. But Jesus has already defined these terms. And so when we can understand what Jesus believes about these commandments, now he understands them. We can understand more about how he's answering the question. On adultery, Jesus has said in Matthew 5:27:28, "You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus has also spoken on murder. Jesus says, in Matthew 5:21-22, "You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder." And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. On stealing, Jesus has also given statements. Just after the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew six nineteen through twenty one, he says, "Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven." where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. After that commandment, Jesus references um, the commandment about false witness. And he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more of this comes from evil. And finally, he references the commandment on honoring your father and mother. Um, in Matthew 15.4, Jesus is debating with the Pharisees on cleanliness. And uh, he, the Pharisees are critiquing the disciples for not washing their hands. Um, and in um, correcting them on their understanding of the law and holiness, Jesus talks about how um, they've been instructing the people following them to give their money um, to the synagogues and to the, Jew, the Jewish authorities instead of helping out their father and mother. Um, and he's kind of reinterpreting that for them in that story, and he's referencing it here. So all of these commandments, he's referenced and reinterpreted, or not reinterpreted, I should say, he's further interpreted from the old covenant to the new and what they meant. And so when Jesus is giving these commandments, he's showing the man and us that the that eternal life, it's, it's so much deeper when we're asking that question of eternal life, um, And all of these commandments, when we read them at the surface level, you know, do not murder, for example, we would just think it's about killing someone. But Jesus said, when you're angry, you're killing, it's like killing someone. And so there's deeper implications for anything we're asked by God and anything we're commanding. And when the ruler is asking this question, he's really asking um, to follow something. But Jesus is showing him as through his teaching that he, he doesn't really know what he's asking because it's, it's a huge thing to enter eternal life and to follow God. Um, and yeah, so he's, he's given these commandments and, and as I've just went through, these are massive implications. If you think through your own life about following these, lusting, being angry, if I look at my own life, even in the past week, I've broken almost all of them. But unlike me, the ruler says, I have kept all these from my youth. Right in response to Jesus. So if you can imagine the scene, the Holy Son of God, he's talking to this ruler. Um, and, and in other passages, he's He's called the rich young ruler. I mean, this one he's not. But if you can imagine him as a young man saying to Jesus, I've obeyed all of these. He's confident in it. He th- he he can stand firm in it, he thinks. And I th- I think a lot of times we can all do that. But what you need to see is that he hasn't even, has even penetrated his heart what Jesus has just said. When the man says, talks about eternal life and his response, and Jesus gives him these commandments, and he's interpreted them as really heart issues, and the man says, I followed them, he's still not getting the point. And you can see that in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and come, follow me. And so, in response to the man saying he committed all those things, Jesus is giving him another command because it seems like he didn't get it the first time. He wants to get at the heart of the matter, an idol, you could say. That this man has maybe obeyed the commandments as they were interpreted to him, but he hasn't truly obeyed God with all his heart and sought the eternal life Jesus has. And, it, and in calling them to this, it seems like Jesus is kind of going away from the commandments because he, he talks about these five, but then he asks them to sell his money. And you're wondering why that is. And he asks them to distribute to the poor. But you can see why he asked this in verse 23. But when the, he heard these things, this is the young ruler, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And so you can see that the man in coming to Jesus and in asking the question and wanting a response, any teacher, when you ask a question, would give a response. But when he gives a response, the man didn't really, he didn't really want to obey. And that's why he was sad, because he knew he couldn't give it up. And Luke tells us that there. He was extremely rich. So his, his disobedience of not following the commands is tied to his wealth. And that's in many cases. And then... Following, when Jesus observes this, as he does in many parables, he, he gives a lesson. Verses 24 and 25. Jesus, seeing that he becomes sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so, he's, we've observed what this man has done. He's asked Jesus how he can inherit eternal life. Jesus has pointed to commandments which really show the heart of the matter and that a devotion to God is deeper than just following rules. But that, yes, but that we can also acknowledge that from your heart you will obey. And that's why Jesus calls him to sell his money or give up all his money and give it to the poor and everything he has. And then Jesus makes a point that when you're wealthy, and I'd say this is more expensive, not just to money, any possessions, That is very challenging to seek after God. We can see, we have a um, a case study right here with the rich young ruler, but you can think of examples in your own lives of people who are wealthy and have used it to make it an idol and they worship that over God. Or in their money, they've sought after God, but they can't give up their possessions of their heart, so they can't enter that eternal life. And then what I like in verse 25 in this somewhat challenging passage is Jesus gives a really simple metaphor for what he's communicating. If you can imagine a camel entering the eye of a needle, it is impossible. You can't do it. And for the rich young ruler, this is kind of a stark statement because he's right there when Jesus has said this. And I think, I want to think of Jesus as always giving a loving gentle answer, which he does, but he's kind of rebuking the ruler right here saying like, you, he couldn't give this up, and so he's showing, using a story indirectly, a truth that it's difficult and that to enter the kingdom of God because this man has just become sad and kind of given up at this point, as we know at this point in the Gospels. And then, but then in verse 26, something changes, and, I, and this is where I, I see the Gospel in this passage. Those following that statement, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Uh, someone in the crowd has seen this interaction happen. They've seen their ruler ask the questions. They've seen Jesus' responses, and they cry out this question, that, or that, at least that's how I picture it: Who can be saved? And that kind of just hit me in my study because as I'm preparing for this sermon and I want to do good and I'm, you know, trying to do everything right. I remember when I asked that question, when I asked who can be saved, when I looked at the commandments. That's part of my testimony. I won't get into all of it, but I was reading a Calvin comment. He was writing on the commandments and I was reading them and I was just like, just dumbfounded at how sinful I was and seeing the reflection of how holy the commandments were and what God had required of his people. And this person, it hits their heart the same way. They cry out, who can be saved? And I think this is a question we all need to ponder because in our, in our salvation, and if you're in Christ, hold on to that. It's true. You don't need to wrestle against that and doubt that constantly. But we need to see the gravity of our salvation like, the, like this person in the crowd did. Seeing the commandments and, and seeing uh, the truths of God um, and asking a question. And I think that's good that it's posed as a question because I think that's what we all need to do. We need to have an answer to that question. And this is, as Jesus always does, he, the people's expectations of what he's going to say is different than what he actually gives, as in the commandments, as in to the ruler, and here in this story. Jesus' rep- response in 27, as I said earlier, is where I see the gospel and where our hope should lie in. But he said, this is Jesus, what is impossible with man is possible with God. He's just given this metaphor of an impossible situation, a camel entering the eye of a needle, and how difficult that is relating it to the wealthy people trying to enter the kingdom. And so this rich ruler, hearing that, at that point loses hope. What can he do? But here, Jesus in his great mercy to the ruler, to the person in the crowd, to anyone else there, and to us today hearing this message, what is impossible with man is possible with God. If you go back up to verse 18, the man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A man's asking how he can get to heaven, how he can be with, with God in communion with him. And here Jesus is responding later on top of all the other things he's given. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And it's a simple answer, but I think there's a lot of beauty in it. And I don't have all the time to cover it today. But I think if we just sat and dwelled on that, that what is impossible with man is possible with God, we would have a lot more hope than we do maybe right now in a lot of situations. That in the greatest act, salvation, it's completely separate from our works of being saved. and That we can do nothing against the commandments, we're guilty. But God, who's almighty and all-powerful through his son, can do the impossible, can take people like you and me and redeem them and save them into eternal life. And so I hope that sticks with you and all my bumbling and fumbling through this sermon, that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And that any time you're wrestling, in any moment you're weary, that know that the God who is over all these things, who has spoken these commandments that we've broken, has redeemed you and called you through his son. But the story doesn't end there. Verse twenty through 30, Peter, as he usually does, speaks up and has a question. Or has a statement in this case. Verse 28, Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And then Jesus responds to this. Peter, comment, going up earlier, seeing that Jesus wanted the man to give up everything, Peter sees this and he wants, he wants everyone to know that he's given it up. And he especially wants Jesus to know. Because the disciples are still wrestling if this is where they're really going to find eternal life. And Peter later denies him. So Peter, throughout his his story, has been wrestling with trusting God and um, believing in the impossible. But Jesus responds to him. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. So Jesus has just spoken of that he can do the that through God. Uh, the impossible can be done. And then Peter wants to know if that's been done for them. He wants to know if, he wants this affirmation that he's received eternal life. And then Jesus gives another promise that anyone who has done this has received eternal life. And in this time in, and in the age to come. And it, it's somewhat vague on what all these blessings are. Obviously eternal life in the age to come. But there is something to be said about what's given in this time. And to be honest, that could be many things. Through my study and through thinking through it, um, it could just be situational. Based on your situation and what you're needing, I think that's where God blesses you. Not in some, you know, way of this person gets this certain amount or anything like that, but just that in your obedience, um, you, you will receive um, things from God that you need by giving up things. Unlike the ruler who left sad, you will, res- you will receive blessing because of your obedience. But there's a lot more to be said there. But what we can see from this story is that all of us are asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All of us are wondering these things and trying to figure things out. But through this story, what we know from what Jesus has said is that it can only be done with God. Only by his grace and his mercy and his truth and giving everything up for the sake of him can you be saved. And so, as I said earlier, rest on that today and each day from now on. That what is impossible with man is possible with God. That if you have given up comfort and joy or anything of comfort or possessions or whatever you've given up, that there's a reward for you now. It may, not, it may not be exactly what you've given up, but there's rewards now and in the age to come, eternal life. So rest on that promise and hope in the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for today and giving us this word. I thank you for the eternal promise that you've given of your son and of your hope. And I pray that, we would, that this would penetrate our hearts, that we would truly believe that you have something for us now and in the age to come. Blessings and eternal life. Thank you for this time together. Amen.
1: Well, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Brad Irvin. Um, as you said, I just had a new baby this week, um, and I really appreciate you all coming out tonight. Um, it's invaluable being able to get this experience. Um, I drove all the way from Salina for it, so um, I'm excited uh, to uh, bring God's Word to you tonight, and um, I hope it, it is a um, useful and um, enjoyable night for you. So I will be preaching on Luke uh, 13, 6 through 9, which is the parable of the fig tree. Then Jesus told a story. A man had a fig tree, he said. It was growing in his vineyard. When he went to look for the fruit on it, he didn't find any. So he went to the man who took care of the vineyard. He said, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, but I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should, we use it? Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and feed it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this good night um, with these good people in this good church, Lord. Um, what a blessing to be here amongst uh, fellow believers uh, diving into your word and hopefully uh, sharpening um, future workers for your kingdom, God. Um, we pray that um, the words will be useful and that they will be yours, Lord. Uh, may all that is of us fall away and all that is of you come to the forefront. Um, we pray that all that we do might be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Everybody you love is going to die. Everything you know, your entire world, it's about to be destroyed. We're supposed to start a sermon with an attention grabber, and I thought that would be a good one. Got your attention now, don't I? I have to admit, I didn't come up with that on myself. I borrowed it from the greatest preacher who's ever lived, the Lord Jesus himself. Tonight, we are talking about the parable of the fig tree, found in Luke 13, 6-9. This is found in another chapter that, in my Bible, starts off with a heading repent or perish, just to set the mood. Jesus is addressing the Jewish people and then moves on to talk about this fig tree that is not producing fruit and going to be cut down, then talking about the growth and triumph of the, his church, the narrowness and exclusivity of the path to heaven, and then ends with a lament of the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people, which are going to be destroyed. No southern hellfire preacher can touch Jesus in Luke 13. The parable of the The parable of the fig tree, I would say, is of special importance, though. This is a reoccurring parable that is referenced throughout the Bible and a declaration of fulfillment of prophecy thousands of years in the making. Now, there are some parts of the Bible that you can just pull up and you'll know right away what they're talking about. Not a lot of context needed for don't murder. Honor your father and your mother. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Lots of parts of the Bible you can read and immediately get... Uh, The meaning without any other information. The parable of the fig tree is not one of them. When I was growing up, the parable seemed to me to be saying that if you aren't doing good things, you are going to get thrown out of the kingdom of God. That idea, though there is discussion to be had there, is false. Rest assured, brothers and sisters, that your partaking in the kingdom of God, praise the Lord, does not rely on your ability to do good things but rely solely on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Should you continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means, as Paul would say. But your good works as children of the most high are a reaction and consequence of your salvation rather than the means to it. Repent and believe the gospel, cry out and claim the precious blood of Jesus as your covering and there is nothing that will ever be able to separate you from the kingdom of God. Well, if the parable of the fig tree isn't saying you personally have to do good things or Jesus kicks you out, what is it saying? In a nutshell, it is the very last warning before the final destruction of the old covenant and the judgment on a covenant-breaking people. To really understand, we're going to need to delve a little deeper, though. You're going to need to understand the covenants of God and how they relate to the covenant people. To really get to what Jesus is saying here, we have to go all the way back. We're going to start at the very beginning, Not with Moses, not even with Abraham. We're going to go back all the way to the fall. The image bearers of God uh, have now broken the, uh, the first covenant, the covenant of works, and they deserve death. Do not eat of this fruit or you will surely die. And death that comes from this fruit is so much more than physical death. It is a spiritual death. Them and their offspring being completely cut off from the presence of God. Curses are being handed out at this point. Curses are handed out to the serpent, the man, and the woman. The serpent will now crawl on his belly and eat of the dust of the ground. The woman has her pain and childbirth worsened, and now has her desire set to dominate her husband, and the man now has his work cursed. It will be difficult and painful and ultimately futile. Dark. This is a dark time in the Bible. But in that darkness, a single, small seed, a seed of light, a mustard seed, if you will, In the middle of these dark curses being handed out to the serpent, a man, a woman. Uh, In the middle of these uh, curses being handed out to the serpent, a promise. A promise of a savior. A promise of salvation. A promise of a child. One verse known as the Proto-Evangelion, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head, he shall bruise your head, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a promise of a savior of humanity, born of a virgin that would be bruised by the serpent, but would ultimately crush his head. So begins our journey through the Bible as the seed is planted. You've got a little fulmination of the seed in the righteousness of people like Abel and Noah, but as for the gospel, nothing but a one-line promise still the small seed of light growing in the darkness. Then we come to the sprout of this seed when we meet the man, Abram. Abram is called by God. That's where we first meet him, being called by God. God makes promises to Abram, not because of anything good he has done, but because he will be the root of the tree that will grow from the seed of light. Abram is blessed by the king and priest Melchizedek. and This is important because Melchizedek is referenced in Hebrews as the archetype for Christ. He is the type of king and priests that Christ is going to be. Abram is blessed by this royal priestly shadow of Christ and the seed starts to sprout. God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 and what is the first promise that he is given? A child. Where before there had been no child, there will be a child. A child born of impossible circumstance and this child will carry the covenant with him. Is this the child spoken of back in the proto Is this the child? No, but he is a shadow of him. It's not the child, but the promise echoes again, the promise of a child, and we see this promise starting to get fleshed out. Abraham's people will be in bondage, but those who are oppressing them will face judgment, and Abraham's people will end up with wealth. You see here the promise of blessing for the people of God and judgment for those who oppose the people of God. Now skip ahead to chapter 17. We see the covenant of circumcision. God promises to the man whom God has now declared Abraham that he will be the father of many nations. He will be the father of many nations. As this seed is starting to sprout, God is painting a picture of the branches that the, this tree of the covenant will have. I want to call this attention to a distinction here. The covenant of circumcision God seals with Abraham is an everlasting covenant. The Abrahamic covenant should be distinguished from the Mosaic covenant, which is not described as everlasting. The promises of making Abraham the father of many nations, a child is promised to Abraham. A child of promise. And as we said, this child will carry the covenant with him, and the tree of light will continue to grow from this sprout. A sprout that continues to grow. From Abraham we move to Isaac, to Jacob. From Jacob, whom God calls Israel, we now start to have branches, As his sons become the tribes of Israel, the tribes are subjugated in Egypt, just as Abraham was promised, and just as God promised, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob plunder the Egyptians and are then called out of bondage into the wilderness. There, from the roots that have been established, we will now see the trunk of the tree start to grow. The tree of God's chosen people continues to grow, for now they are given another covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, through God's servant Moses. We started with one line as a promise of a savior. That promise grows through the covenants before it, and just as a billboard that is blurry from far away gets easier to read the closer you get, so the picture of Christ and his work painted by God's covenants become clearer the closer we get to him. The Mosaic Covenant boasts several books of laws for a total of 613 laws. If you think these laws have nothing to do with you, friends, you are sorely, sorely mistaken. The Mosaic Covenant reveals God's heart and mind in a way that was not previously present. We have the justice of God, his concern for the poor, the command to love your neighbor. All of these are found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But most of all, our tree. The tree that has been growing bursts with an explosion of growth in the Mosaic Covenant and it's dripping with the picture of the child from the seed. It's in the Mosaic Covenant we see the lamb being slain by the priest to atone for the sins of the people. You see that the blessing promised to Abraham will come to pass, and the Mosaic Covenant addresses how this nation should act as the people of God. We have gone from a one-line promise to a covenant with one man to now a covenant with a nation with 613 new rings on this trunk. And do you have foreshadowing? Oh, do you have foreshadowing? God set down the rules of how to clean a house with rot and impurity in Leviticus 14. Important foreshadowing for later, so remember that. He lays down the importance of blood and how it must be shed for an atonement. He describes the blessings of following this covenant and the curses of breaking it. There's a year's worth of sermons to go into on the Mosaic Covenant, or the Old Covenant, as we would call it now. It's deep, and it tells you more about the heart of God, and you as a member of a New Covenant church should absolutely be familiar with it. I almost can't over-exaggerate the difference and the depth you will get from God's word with being familiar with the Old Covenant. With that said, we see in Hebrews 10.1, the law has but a shadow of the things to come. It doesn't make perfect those who draw near. So our tree is not done growing. So back to our story. We have this wonderful fleshing out and branching out of the tree growing through the ages. The people of Israel cross the Jordan and take possession of the land that was promised to Abraham. And again, God fulfills his promises. The Canaanite inhabitants are cast out for their wickedness, and the covenant people of God take claim of what will be the land of Israel. They grow into the land, sometimes faithful, often not. And problems seep in because of that. We see the people of Israel move from being led by judges and prophets to being led by a king. The first king forsakes God and his kingship and is lost, but the second, the second king is a man after God's own heart. This is David, the king of Israel. And with David, we see the next growth of this tree where the Mosaic covenant extends, the Davidic covenant sharpens and clarifies. This man who writes the Psalms starts bringing detail to promise and prophecy. God promises David a child echoing our promise from before and shadowing the future child to come. The child promised will come from David's lineage. This legendary king will be put to shame by his offspring that has a reign that will never end. Second Samuel seven twelve, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. God ends with the promise that David's throne will be established forever. Now don't misunderstand here. Primarily, God is talking about Solomon and how he will build the temple here. That's clear from the context. But look at the words and listen to the language. I will be a father to him and he shall be my son. He shall build a house for my name. You see the shadow of Christ again. Again, the promise is a blessing to come through a child. God's promise to David is so much more than just that Solomon will build the temple. God is telling him that the child who will crush the head of the serpent the child of the promise given to Abraham, the lamb that is slaughtered to atone for sins that was spoken of to Moses, we will see him again in the Davidic covenant as the one who will come from the lineage of David, build a house for God, and establish a kingdom that shall never end. And the tree continues to grow. But almost immediately after David, rot sets into the tree. Idolatry, filth, Sexual debauchery, child sacrifice, all these take up residence in God's tree. There are warnings, prophets are sent, the people are called to repentance, and they do not listen. Remember the Mosaic Covenant? God had already established what the penalty was for breaking the covenant. The house that was built for God has disease, and the Mosaic Covenant says how to deal with a diseased house in Leviticus 14. You take out the rot and shut the house. Some time will pass and the inhabitants will be allowed to return to the house. But if there is rot a second time, that house is completely destroyed down to the last stone. Most of Leviticus 26 states what will happen to the covenant people of God if they should break the Mosaic Covenant. I myself will lay waste to the land so that your people who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and you will, will draw my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste, and your city will lie in ruins. But the rot grows in the tree of promise. Idols and debauchery and evil and, and judgment comes upon the tree. First the northern kingdom of Israel falls, then later Judah, as the Lord God warned through his prophets. As Habakkuk saw, as Isaiah saw, the Babylonians came as God's instrument of judgment and meted the penalty on the breakers of the covenant. Rot was found in the house and the Babylonians evicted the inhabitants and shut the house as per Leviticus 14. As promised, Israel's cities lie in ruins and the people are scattered amongst the nations. Ezekiel in chapter 11 of his book describes God pronouncing judgment on the temple and in Israel, then leaving the temple and going to the mountain on the east side of the city. You might know this mountain by its other name, the Mount of Olives. In Ezekiel, God pronounces judgment on the people of Israel, leaves the temple, and goes to the Mount of Olives. Remember that, it's going to come back again. But for now, God has promised judgment on Israel and Jerusalem, and he always keeps his promises. The judgment comes, the first temple is destroyed, and the people of God are scattered to the wind. The tree is not dead, however, just uprooted, moved to a foreign land where it languishes. But God reveals his plans to his people in Israel. Daniel, Ezekiel, prophets of God held in captivity in a foreign land, are given promises and visions of Israel restored. Ezekiel is shown around a new temple that will be built. The people of Israel are given a promise that they will return to their land and return they do. They are promised that a new temple will be built, and it is. Nehemiah leads the people of Israel back to the land of Israel, and as promised, the temple is rebuilt and the tree is replanted back in its home roots. But as was revealed to Daniel, the people fall under the oppression of the legs of the statue. The fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, has dominion over the covenant people. They chafe under the Roman yoke, and they long for God to fulfill the greatest promise of all, the child. The child who Isaiah saw would carry the government on his shoulders. The child of David, who would build the house of God and sit on the throne of David, and whose kingdom would never end. The child promised to Abraham who would make him a father of many nations. The child who would crush the head of the serpent. The son. The promise that started as a tiny seed. A couple of lines about a child that kills a snake. That has now expanded and grown. It's been clarified with promises and prophets so that the covenant people of God know that the child will come at any time. So that the tree groans under oppression and waits. And listens listens for the voice that will tell them their Messiah, the son of David, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Eve, the son of God has come. They listen and they wait and they hear a voice. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord has been revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For as the prophet Malachi said, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you see will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Yes, John the Baptist, the voice in the wilderness, heralds the coming of the child, foretold from the beginning the Messiah, the Redeemer, and the Savior. As promised, the child is born of a virgin in the city of David, of David's lineage. He grows in wisdom, is consecrated in his priesthood by the messenger himself, and starts in his ministry in earnest. The Jews cross seas and cut holes and roofs to see this living incarnate fulfillment of prophecy. Emmanuel, God with us, and what message does he bring? Well, now we finally come to our parable. Luke 13:6 through 9. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to a man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this tree and haven't found any. Cut it down, why should it use up soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is not the only time Jesus speaks of the fig tree. In Mark 11, Jesus finds a fig tree when he is hungry that is offering him leaves, no fruit, and he curses it and it withers. Sandwiched right in the middle of this story of Jesus finding this fig tree uh, is the story of when Jesus visits the temple and drives out the money changers, declaring the temple corrupted. It is not a coincidence that this is coupled in with the cursed fig tree that bears no fruit. The Jews know what Jesus was saying in this parable, they recognize themselves as the tree. The Jews know the law and the prophets, the Old Testament as we know it, and they recognize the judgment language. He is threatening the covenant people of God. Repent, you are not bearing fruit, and if you don't, you will be cast into the fire. That is why the chief priests and the teachers of the law look to kill him after they hear this. Jesus threatened them with the judgments of Babylon. Did you ever think about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? It was a big day. He'd had a long journey. It was supper time, which is why he was going to eat. He had to be hungry, much like he was when he encountered the fig tree. As the child of promise, the son, he rode into Jerusalem, the seat of power of the covenant people, the tree from our parable. Was he offered food after his long journey? Any type of refreshment? No. He was offered leaves. On his triumphal entry, the fig tree of the covenant people offered him nothing but leaves in the literal sense and the spiritual sense. What comes of this? There is one more place a fig tree is referenced. Matthew twenty-four thirty-two to 35. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This reference to the fig tree comes again at the end of the terrible judgments and condemnations. Every reference to the fig tree is coupled with judgment language. In this instance, first against the Pharisees in Matthew 23, then against the temple, the house with the rot, then against the fig tree itself that is only putting out leaves. Jesus pronounces judgment on Israel and the temple, departs from Jerusalem, and goes to the Mount of Olives, just as he did back in Ezekiel 11, to show the coming destruction of Babylon. Jesus comes back and finds rot in the temple the second time, and the law demands that it be torn down completely and never rebuilt. And he promises to fulfill that law in Matthew 24.2. Jesus promises judgment and destruction, withering of the tree that is only offering him leaves, and its house that has rot for a second time to be torn down so that not one stone is left on another. He says it will come within a generation, 40 years by Jewish reckoning. That judgment was given roughly in the year 33 AD. If you go 40 years into the future, what do you find on Mount Zion? You find destruction and devastation. You find no Pharisees, no temple, and a demolished Jerusalem because of, in the year 70 AD, the Roman army brought this prophesied judgment upon the house of God, much as the Babylonians did the first time. The fig tree and the tree of the covenant people withered and were destroyed. Or was it? Are we left with no hope? Was the sea the light from the beginning fruitless? Did God default on his promise to Abraham and David? By no means. There are two main people groups the Bible talks about, the Jews and the Gentiles, and God has promises for both of them after the destruction. First of the Jews, Paul in Romans 11, quoting the prophet Isaiah, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So you see, as was from the beginning, God is gracious, as he has always been. A remnant is kept. The tree of the covenant people is not completely stuffed out. Though it was gutted, a great amount of rot was hacked off. But it's the same tree, and the gutting of that tree made way for something else. The second of the two groups, the Gentiles. For Gentiles, the word of our Lord in Luke chapter 14, just a short ways down from our parable of the fig tree being judged. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent out his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see to it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. You and I, friends, We are those highwaymen and beggars. The Gentiles have been invited to the banquet. So you see those two parts tell us one thing. The tree of promise that sprung from the seed of promise way back in Genesis 3, it did not die. It's still growing strong. Oh, it had an axe to it, taken to it in the first century. But God always keeps his remnant. And not only that, but as the prophets Isaiah and Zechariah saw, as the apostle Paul describes a wild olive branch, the Gentiles, was grafted into the tree of promise, the covenant people, and now the two are intermingled as one in a new tree with roots of the old tree, but better in every way than the old. Will we sit at a different table from our Jewish believers? Are they held in higher regard? Will we as Gentiles be relegated to servants in the eternal kingdom? By no means. Roman 10:12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. God in his grace, in his impossible mercy, has grafted the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation into the covenant tree. And there is now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is not male and female, for all are one in Jesus Christ. So how does the story end? Are there promises of the everlasting covenant of Abraham and David fulfilled? Does God keep his promises? By yes means. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces and before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Relation, Revelation 7, 9-12 The child has crushed the head of the serpent the lamb the son of David sits on this throne forever Abraham is the father of many nations who worship the lamb on his throne descendants from Abraham both by birth and adoption by root and by grafting and the new tree will never cease to offer fruit to the Lord father Abraham had many sons many sons had father Abraham I am one of them and so are you So let's all praise the Lord. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this good night and this uh, chance. We pray that uh, your word was spoken, Lord, and that um, you will continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and uh, take all that is from you, God, and let everything else fall away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
2: First off, thank you for the opportunity to come here and refine skills in public speaking and understanding of God's Word and potentially to uh, build up some more uh, ability to preach God's Word in the future. Uh, first off, let us pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for all the people here. Thank you for this covenant community. Thank you for just all the blessings that you've, you've given us. I pray today for uh, accuracy with your Word, and uh, I pray that I would be faithful to it and I pray that you would fill me with zeal to be able to preach this and to uh, do it uh, with, with your name in mind and uh, something that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. So, first off, uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, please open up to Solomon, Songs of Solomon, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now... I didn't know exactly what uh, to preach on, I didn't actually necessarily pick this text. I was given three options and this one kind of stood out to me and uh, I decided to take on this challenge and I told Brian about it and uh, his first reaction was in my message to give the little haha, you know, when you tap the message and you can react to it. So I think he thought I was, I was kidding and then I talked to him again at church and he was like, oh you're being serious. So, um, there's a little preface there about Songs of Solomon. Uh, it is not exactly, I think, uh, a text that a lot of people preach on. So, let's, uh, let's get into it. Uh, Songs of Solomon, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Uh, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana and, and peak of Sanir and... Oh, well, there it is. Up to... Verse 7, you are beautiful, you're altogether beautiful, my love, there is no flaw in you. Alright, so, I don't know about you guys, but that is exactly how I speak to my wife. <laughs> Not really. So, uh, this, I, I, I had some hesitation in choosing this verse at first, but I do believe in Second Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16, that all, all scripture is fit for teaching, and it was funny that you you put that in there in the email as well, uh, because I had already planned on saying that. Uh, So I want to use this passage as a a bit of a springboard to direct our focus on some of the things that scripture teaches us about marriage and about sex. Uh, So first off, context is King. Who's speaking here? It is Solomon. And uh, what is he talking about? Uh, Rather than recording every specific detail of his relationship with uh, Shulamith, Solomon uses this extravagant language, this extravagant poetic language to express his overwhelming passion for her, uh, his bride-to-be. And he was probably writing this or talking about uh, near or on his wedding night with her. Uh, How is he doing this? Uh, He is using a giant simile salad, as I think it is, because he says your hair is like a flock of goats, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes, your lips are like a scarlet thread, your neck is like the Tower of David. All these is like. And he describes multiple natural wonders to express his love, which is pretty beautiful. I, I like that. And he feels that eros love, that erotic love for her, which is fitting because she's going to be his wife. Uh, He describes her literally from head to toe and, you know, uses those similes. And uh, we don't really see that type of language too much today in our culture uh, when we're talking about love. Uh, This culture has deconstructed sex to be the striving for momentary pleasure and fulfillment and it has even become a commodity. And so I think all of us know that sex sells and you can see it on ads and uh, Netflix and TV shows. There's shows like uh, Love at First Kiss where like you kiss the woman and then you're married the next day or stuff like that or Love Island where you kind of, it's all entertainment for us but really it's its talking about deeper, deeper issues here. And uh, just Sex as a commodity—you have to look at the, the porn industry, for example. Worldwide, it's 97 billion dollars uh, in that industry, and in the U.S. alone, 10 to to 12 billion billion with a B—that's uh, you know unfathomable amount of money. Uh, then you can look towards dating apps and uh, the exponentially increased accessibility to sexual interactions. And by no means do I mean that if anyone has gotten married through these dating apps that their marriage is illegitimate or in, in any way like that, I'm just saying that the people that look for those kinds of interactions, it's it's uh, more attainable for them. Uh, and it has in- decreased the meaning behind meeting someone and building that relationship and then ultimately having a covenant with them. And uh, really, it highlights that no covenant is required these days in the eyes of our culture. Uh, that there 's no responsibility that peop- or a culture is telling us that there 's no responsibility that a man has when we have contraceptives and easy ways to you know have the pleasure and then leave and not have to look back and that's that 's a tragedy uh, and really it 's just a result of the fall i mean we've we 've heard it uh, mentioned here by the other speakers and uh, it's been flushed out for sure, but it's definitely a result of uh, Adam and Eve's sin and bringing sin into the world. And we have that curse and they've chosen not to, they chose not to submit, honor and thank God. And in uh, Romans 1, as Paul says in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And we are seeing a result of that today. And it's replaying itself over and over. Now Solomon's poem doesn't tell the full story of uh, his love and, and his life. Now, Solomon had many wives. Some say 700 wives and 300 concubines. And that paints a little bit of a, a different picture now of the, the poem that we just read. Uh, it, it, really, it really cheapens it. When you read it at first, he's talking about his beautiful bride-to-be. It's very innocent, it's, it's, it's clean, it's, it's admirable. And then with that new context that she was just another woman amongst the hundreds, it really, it, it, like I said, it cheapens that, that meaning behind it. And uh, you could even, I urge you to to think about it, what if it was David talking about Bathsheba now that poem also loses all of its meaning now these are two biblical men wise men David was after God's God's own heart a man after God's own heart how he's described and yet he has fall, fallen prey to sexual immorality and fallen into temptation and uh, sex, sexual immorality is also found in prominent christian leaders today and it's a tragedy because what does that tell the people that he leads and the world about christ and his church it paints a very negative picture if we've built ourselves up as being separate not uh, in this world but not of this world yet we're doing the things of the world and uh, not all men fell prey to sexual temptation in the bible for example there is Joseph and Potiphar's wife. That story. Uh, he was in his master's house, and his master gave him the responsibility to look after all of his things. And his wife was also there, and he was supposed to look after her as well. But she kept, you know, clawing at him and telling him lie with me. Uh, and he kept turning around, and he hesitated. He uh, turned away from it. And then one day she said, lie with me. And he saw the temptation and he ran away so fast that he left his, his clothing. And she accused him of sleeping with him. And that wrecked his reputation. But he had the ability to turn away from that sin. To turn away from that temptation. The level of commitment that Joseph displayed is a testament to how we as men should act in our upbringing and in our marriages. I'm speaking to you men. That's how we should act in the face of this temptation. Now, sin has twisted the human desire for sex. However, with the right person, and at the right time, and in the right setting, sexual intimacy is a God-given delight. And we can be guilty of bringing that shame into the marriage bed, as we push back against the world. Sometimes we don't feel comfortable having the conversation with our spouses, even though it should be a delight, because we're doing it within the covenant and the way, the order that was prescribed to us by God. And marriage really has so much more meaning than just sexual intimacy. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. If we turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, this reminds me of uh, going back to the porn thing. There was a, I can't remember exactly, but someone told me one time that they tried to do a study with young men uh, to see the effects of pornography on the brain, and they couldn't find a control group because all the men had been... uh, had been shown pornography or in in some way came up in their life and that is you going into this life with spot and blemish and effect from the world and how you think about sex and really we need to be focused on what God says about sex, what God says about marriage and the significance and the meaning behind it and really it is a returning to the garden as it was intended to be God made Adam and Eve naked And it was beautiful and peaceful and they didn't have any shame until they sinned. And then they needed to cover up and they felt that shame. And we still feel that shame today. However, what we can learn from Solomon's poetic expression towards his bride-to-be is that the right conditions for sexual intimacy can be enjoyed with delight and without guilt. Outside of marriage, the marriage covenant however, though the desire may be strong, it must not be entertained. In those moments where we feel the temptation to do something that we know we should not do, we should be like Joseph and run away. It's, it's David, going back to David with Bathsheba, it said he, he stared too long. For Joseph, he didn't even hesitate, he ran away. And that 's the level of commitment that I think we need to that we need to instill in our children and in ourselves when we go through this life and we 're bombarded with sex and everything that the culture teaches us and I, I leave that with you today so let us pray Lord thank you for everything that you've taught us thank you for your word thank you for the way that you intend things to be and giving us Uh, an idea of what that is telling us what it is so that we might be aligned with your intended purpose Uh, that we might live uh, more pleasing lives to you and that we would be the covenant people that you have intended us to be and that we would not just fight these battles on our own but that we would lean on your spirit to work through us to give us strength in those times of temptation we pray all these things in jesus name amen
1: Back
0: so before I begin, would you pray with me? Lord, I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach your word, to be a messenger uh, for the gospel and for the scripture you've given us, Lord. Um, may I be um, cast away of all anxiety or rushing thoughts, and may, uh, may all of us just be attentive to the word that you've brought to us today, Lord. Um, And all praise and glory and honor be to you. Amen. We all have expectations. Expectations for our careers. Expectations for our life. Expectations for relationships. And expectations about how things should be. And often we set these expectations based on our desires and our wants. What do I want to happen? And what do I think? should the end result be. And that usually leads to these expectations being misled and misconstrued. This is not new. From the beginning, people have set their ideas and their thoughts in their own plans. The people of Israel had an expectation of a king who would come and redeem them. Uh, The word often used is Messiah, a Hebrew word that means the anointed one. Um, Anointing was a process usually for kings or those set apart for a specific purpose. Um, Kings would usually be anointed before their time um, and their reign. Um, Prophets were also anointed. But specifically, there was one Messiah that would come, uh, preached and prophesied, that would have an everlasting kingdom that would reign, that would conquer, and that would save their people. And that's where we come today, the prophet Isaiah. So if you want to turn to Isaiah 53, that's where we'll be today. Isaiah has a lot to say about this Messiah, but also this idea of Messiah and this king. Uh, Isaiah prefers to use the term servant, an interesting idea conveyed For a servant is lowly and a servant is not highly established and does not have a high authority. And yet this servant has this great power. And the setting we're in today is post-exile. As we've heard earlier, the Babylon Empire has crushed the people of Israel, destroyed, dispersed these people. And so at their lowest, what is God going to do for them? What can they hope and what can they believe that God is going to do for them? Well, he will send a Messiah. And let's read Isaiah 53 together. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence. But there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with affliction. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him, the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish, he shall see, he shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's a a heavy passage we're dealing with. I want to start out to say that this king, this Messiah that we know now is Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise. But we notice in the beginning there's this ordinary man that we're, we're we're looking at. There was no form or majesty, as the text says. And this, this is highlighting that Jesus is a human man. Worked out through church history, and it's, it's been debated on, on what this means, but the Son of God came as a real human flesh man. There was no grand light that he came down in. But that he was born as a baby, and that he was a true human and this ordinariness made him relate to us and we can see that that him as a man he he is knowledgeable of our afflictions as we see that he's a man of suffering acquainted with our grief and he, but yet this ordinary man was despised and rejected by many suffering hardship rejection despised we can almost see him as an outcast and this draws our attention to jesus and his life you know the the pharisees and all these groups of people he was not liked by many often challenged often threatened and yet still he continues on with his mission we see that even in the suffering, he continues on because he has a purpose. Though despised and rejected, he will continue on. And yet, we see that not only is his suffering societal, but it's also personal because he is dealing with our infirmities and our diseases. The judgment and pain that we're deserving, he is bearing. Somehow, somehow this servant is taking on our wound. and even says he's struck down by God and afflicted. And we see why. He's wounded for our transgressions, crushed for an, our iniquities. And we see this all throughout the life, but it's highlighted in the cross. His side pierced for you. Thorns piercing his head for you. Sour drink given to him for you. His clothes casted lots for for you. Do you see it? When we look at the when we look at the cross, we see this ultimate and great display of mercy. That him taking on our transgressions is grace. This is the ultimate grace that we we see throughout Scripture. How How is he no transgression, no iniquity, taken on our complete and utter sin? We see that we make his death necessary and that's the beauty and the wonder of the cross. How can a perfect man take on his people's sin? How is that fair to him? Oh, but he does it for the sake of his people. The punishment of us all was laid on him, and we are somehow healed by his suffering. Somehow his death brings us life. How great and good news is that. This wonder that God doesn't send his son to die for the great, for the majestic, for the glorious, for the right, but, as we see in Romans 5, 7 through 8, indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't die for you because you've amounted a great number of good works. That you've declared to him that you've reached the bar. No, no. Though you were dead in sin in the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, you were made alive in Christ, so that by the riches of his mercy you might display that in the greatest sinner he might show mercy. The wonder of this of this great work of the servant, that we might find that the prideful, the greedy, the abuser, the murderer, the sexually immoral all find rest in the arms of the salvation brought through the Son. And we need to recognize that this sin is great and burdensome. This passage highlights an important truth for us to think about. The darkness and the gravity of sin is real. Sin corrupts, destroys. Between us and God, between us and another, between us and creation, every aspect of our lives is corrupted by this great sin. Sin darkens and destroys. Sin defiles. Sin demeans. And yet, somehow, this servant conquers it all. He comes and he dies and he takes on this transgression and he defeats it completely. And we continue to read all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're the prodigal son who has ran away and has seeked his own path. And that iniquity and that wrestling was laid on Christ himself and yet he takes it on gladly so that we might have reconciliation with God. We have gone astray, but he has rescued us from the darkness that we lived in. The good shepherd has come, saving us from the wolf that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. How great and sorrowful is this for us. We have to recognize that Jesus on the cross was because of our iniquity. But we can also relish and celebrate that he did that for us. That in the darkness of the cross, there's a light of the resurrection. And this, this passage somehow before the time of Christ is preaching the gospel to these people in exile. We can find the truth and our hope in this passage. That even in the injustice of the spotless lamb, though he would suffer under evil, we would find our hope in him. And we, and they thought it, that was the end. Our iniquity has, has been on the Son, and he dies and he's in this tomb. As we read Isaiah, his grave was with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was laid with the wicked, treated as if he was a criminal, under the punishment of crucifixion, he took it on. But don't hear that in sorrow. Hear that and rejoice and sing and glorify that the Lord would see you as not worthy by anything you would do, but out of his mercy, he would save you and me by the great love with which he loved us. The death of Jesus was not the end for him and it's not the end for us. That sin and death would not be the total end. But they might find eternity with the Savior and this was the will of God to crush him with affliction. That when his life is made an offering for sin he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Some, somehow in this, the mystery of our faith the death of Christ brings an eternal life to all who trust in his name. We have to believe that and trust that. And we know it's true because this is not something we have to hope in or work for. The prophecy of Isaiah here we find fulfilled in Christ and completed in that moment. No longer do we wrestle and toil for our salvation, no longer do we have to strive and despair but we know for sure completely that our Savior has done the work. We are inheritance, inheritance of a glorious eternal life that we might have a new heart mind through Christ and by the work of the Spirit we might share in this great reward. In this anguish that the servant suffers, he'll find satisfaction. And this is This is maybe my favorite line from this passage. Hear this. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous. The lamb is so perfect, complete, and worthy, and glorious that somehow a sinner can be called righteous. You are righteous by Christ and his work. And often we carry this burden of being a sinner. And it's true, we do, have, we do wrestle with sin. But no longer are we under that burden. You're righteous. Not because of your work but by the finished work of Christ on the cross. Believe that. Because he has borne your iniquity. And this reward that we share is explained well by Peter in 1 Peter 1, 3-4 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ by his great mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Your inheritance by the suffering servant his death for you is imperishable undefiable, unfading. Not Satan, not any sin or struggle can take that away from you. It's secured forever by the will of the Father, through the work of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Trust that today. And as we come to verse 12, we read, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The resurrected Christ intercedes for you. As the great high priest in which we trust him, we can enter confidently before the throne of God. Let us approach his throne boldly, knowing that a full and complete atonement was made for the sins of us. Do you hear it? No longer do we come before God fearful and scared but the loving Father sent His Son so that you might have eternal life and a relationship with Him. You might walk in newness of life. We should hear this message not in sorrow at the cost of the death of Christ but the lighting and the love of God that He would send His Son so that we who who were dead in sin might find new life in Him. And we see this suffering, servant, as we've worked through this passage. That this not only affects our salvation, but our new life. Your struggle with sin is not on you. The yoke of a fallen world is not on you. Because the servant suffered for you. Now you have power to overcome and fight sin. By the work of the Spirit in you. You can overcome sin. You are not no longer chained to this sin that you battle with. We can overcome sin by the power of Christ in us. We are new creations for those who struggle with their salvation. Am I really saved? Can, I, can a sinner like me really find salvation in Christ? The answer is yes. In faith, for those who trust in the work of the servant we find a complete and assured salvation. Not one that can be lost. Not one that can be taken away. But one that is secure for us. I think something that to close with is from one of the, one of the popular hymns that we sing here. How deep the Father's love for us. This is, this is a, a line. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Trust the message today. The servant suffered, was pierced, rejected for you, that you might walk in newness of life. Rest assured in the blood of Christ that has washed you, made you clean, and secured you for eternity with the Father, that you might delight and enjoy him forever. Let's pray together. God you are worthy of all majesty and glory and honor by the work of your son Jesus Christ though he was perfect and spotless in all his ways he was rejected by an evil world he was crushed by an empire that despised him hung on a cross he was pierced hands feet and side wearing a crown of thorns mocked and scorned Yet he, he did this for us the people of God, that we might find eternal rest and eternal hope in you, Lord. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the free gift which you've offered us in Jesus Christ.
1: To the glory of him be forever. Amen.